What's up guys, welcome to another episode of the Chalking Fitness Podcast. Taking a different angle this week, um, I'm going to bring you some audio from a really interesting discussion I had with Chris Calloway. Chris Calloway isn't a name that you might recognise, but Chris uh, was the manager of Nasty Saxons through the 1920 sanctional season that we can all agree was disrupted to say the least. Um, Chris brings with him over 20 years of playing coaching and managing high to professional level rugby. Um, Chris himself walked into a CrossFit gym about two years ago for, for personal reasons and he immediately was intrigued in bringing some of his skill set into enabling uh, elite athletes to compete effectively on the sanctional circuit. It's a really interesting discussion. We covered a lot of different topics and we're going to join the conversation with Chris sharing a little bit about how he got into CrossFit, but more specifically, how he very quickly got involved in trying to support athletes who wanted to compete on a team in the sanctional season. A lot of that started, so I, I walked away from Sevens and in my last season, running the Sevens side of it, uh, I... I discovered the extremities of some of my injuries that I'd incurred playing professional rugby. Some of that is uh, chronic arthritis in my spine, all of these type of things. Um, went through a whole surgical process. Basically, long story short, I'm trying to keep the surgeon away. Mm -hmm. um, so that involved me going back to the gym and building up the muscles around my back. Started off at um, Pure Gym and ended up at the CrossFit box. That CrossFit box happens to be the same CrossFit box as Tom Watson. Mm -hmm. um, I think I coached, I think Tom had attended a total of three training sessions for me when he was still playing rugby. Uh, he broke his arm and then we never saw him again. And I think he then decided he wanted to do professional CrossFit. All right, Tom and I got talking. I watched him compete in a couple of teams that season. So that was the 2018 season. Um, he and I got talking. I said, look, this CrossFit thing, if we put, if we put together a team, do you think with the ambition of getting to the games, could we do that? What would that look like? So we started talking about, I said, look, you take care of the athlete side of it, I'll take care of the logistical side mm. of it. Um, yeah. And that ambition was, can we qualify for a sanction? So, you know, you start drawing the lines of, what's our team look like to, are we good enough to qualify for a sanction? And then it goes... Yes, we can qualify for a sanctional. Can we actually put a team out? Mm -hmm. So we go through all those different steps. So, um, yeah, we put a team together. So that was uh, Liam Hogan, uh, Nadia Abreu, Hat Hewitt, and, and Tom Watson mm -hmm. um, were the team that we we put together. And I then looked at let's keep the let's keep the Saxons brand because that's that's easy for me mm -hmm. in terms of certain circles that I live in. Saxons is I'm kind of known as Saxons, right. and for me that was just a very easy thing. To go to put something to, to put a new structure around Saxons, got a few people that are you talking about things. Um, enabled me uh, to go and have a conversation with Nasty. Um, I go, look, this is what we're trying to do. I'm a firm believer, predominantly because the events background, I believe in partnerships rather than sponsorship. Um, some people might argue that sponsorship, you give me 10 grand and I, I give you my soul. I'm going, well, let's create something that we can both benefit from. Yeah. Rather, uh, and that's we did a partnership yeah. with with Nasty. Um, the idea was they produce kit, we help promote it. Mm -hmm. The benefit of we'll, we'll share we'll share the profits of, of the sales. That yeah. that's kind of where we got to, and then we qualified. Mm -hmm. So you, you've um, 
it's safe to say that you've transitioned with experience of managing teams into CrossFit yes. rather than, say, developed that experience within the sport. Has that kind of created barriers it to, to, it to your, your approach? It has. And I think one of the one of the key significant things is, this is no criticism on the athletes, I am not a credible CrossFit tactician. Mm-hmm. I'm not a credible CrossFit coach. I have no CrossFit qualifications. Um and certainly when, because I have no comp- direct competition experience within CrossFit, I'm very limited to what I can actually offer the athletes from a tactical performance basis. Um, and that's something that we, we've, we've had some very big hindsights, and we'll probably get into that in a, in a couple of minutes, but there were some very big things that we learned during that process of going, right, we're not doing this the right way. So... There was that side of it, but at the same time, I think, and I'd hope that the athletes would look at what I put in place, how we got from A to B, the stuff that they didn't have to worry about. They just, I enabled them to just turn up and perform. Mm. You know, uh, Norway was an interesting experience for me because uh, goal was beautiful, beautiful uh, events, but the cost of food on site compared to what you could buy supermarket pulls apart right I mean, and, and we know athletes need to eat right so yeah, it's a so bit of a kind of a captured economy right guess who was running up and down the hill <laughs> <laughs> guess who missed half the events running up and down the hill going because they're like we need all this food can you go and get it yes like, just run off and go and get it um but that's i think one of the things when people look at within every team whether rugby whatever sport you want to do but that logistical um expertise of just going I will take all of that worry away from the performers mm. um, I think it's quite an undervalued skill um, I think a lot of people think herding cattle is an, is, is an easy, easy thing to do and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense but mm. literally getting people from A to B yeah. is the equivalent of herding cattle uh, I, I prefer the herding cats <laughs> analogy there's definitely but I think, I think anyone who's been involved in like kind of uh, a youth organization and it's not saying athletes are youths but you know they've got a focus right they're trying to focus purely on their game you know giving it their best effort and so if you can have their food laid out for them if you can carry their bag for them and it might seem demeaning but it's all part of the team effort yes but then i would i would argue that i mean particularly with myself uh certainly with some of the conversations that i've been i've had with people during the course of the season when they meet me they're like oh oh i, I thought you were one of the athletes um, and when, when people go, oh right, you're you're not you're not an athlete. Mm. There's that perspective of trying to work out where I fit into uh, where, where I fit into the space. Yeah. I think uh, because we run the ambition with the Saxons is the Saxons are not a profit making entity. We're looking for people to earn from the Saxons. So athletes, mm. they need to earn a living. Um, but the Saxons themselves, they're they're as a it is not a business. Um, we've a, a few people have gone. Oh, we should make it a business. And I turn around and go, okay, watch my business. Watch my business do. And they can't answer it because mm. I'm not a coach. I don't know where to find the right coach um, to build something like the training plan or JST. Mm. And to be quite frank, I'm not interested in that. I own another business, and I'm quite comfortable with what mm. I'm doing in my other business. That is where I want. That's that's my work life, and that, mm. I'm very focused on that. 
CrossFit for me is a hobby, but it doesn't mean that what the Saxons are and want to do with themselves has to be a hobby. They mm. can still be a professionally run organisation running a not-for-profit uh, mm. mentality uh, that enables athletes to have the freedom to turn up and perform. Yeah. And that's kind of the driving force of yeah. what it is. And people go, what's my angle on it? And I go, look, it's a, it's a, it's a purely um, uh, charitable endeavour on my mm-hmm. part um, because I enjoy it. Yeah. And I, I, I enjoy enabling people to perform. That mm-hmm. is something that I just, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a thing in me. Chris obviously has a lot of experience and expertise. However, it comes from another sport and that he wasn't the traditional rising through the ranks within the community. So I was really interested to understand if he had any frustrations or uh, external insights that he could provide into the way that teams and competition operated within the uh, CrossFit community. And that's probably my one frustration that I've had with CrossFit. Um, there, there is a, how do I best describe it? A nervousness around people who are doing stuff in CrossFit because it is not the most profitable occupation to enter into. Everybody's very guarded about this. Is, this is mine. I've built this. Mm. So, no, you can't have a bit of this. And well, I mean, without trying to be critical of it, um, Tap were very enabling for us. Um, Mike was phenomenal in helping us out of when we had our injury situations. Mm. Didn't have to do that, but you know, full respect to him. The reason the Saxons won't build training programs, I'm not interested in mm. building one. I don't have. It's yeah. not what I. It's not my focus. Yeah. Um, for me, it's, a, it's it's just that charitable endeavour mm. that I'm enjoy. I enjoy doing those type of things. Yeah. And and taking some of the bits off the plate of the people that do the training program or do the kind of the, the work on the on the competition floor. Yes. It was really interesting to hear Chris talk about how. CrossFit as a sport is not necessarily as profitable as one might think. So when I asked Chris to expand on kind of his reflections on the sanctionals and, and Saxons and what Saxons would be doing going forward, he was really keen to talk more broadly actually about some of the issues he perceives with the cost to compete for athletes who are competing on the, the sanctional circuit and, and even above at the elite level. I think we have to address some of the bigger issues within CrossFit, if you don't mind, before before mm. we get into how we change that. So for me, some of the biggest challenges and, and talking to the athletes was living. They have to make a living. And what I didn't appreciate when I started out on this journey was every day they are away from home is a day that they are not earning money. Um, they are the, Unfortunately, most CrossFit coaches are effectively PTs. And their income is earned from regularly delivering one-on-one PT sessions. That is how they earn their living. Um, two of them are box owners. Uh, Hat is a box owner and Liam is a box owner. Dane has been a box owner, but he sold up and has moved to Tribe and is, is basically a lead coach at Tribe. You know, Hat has said, you know, the box itself barely washes it, its face every year. And she's deli- and she earns most of her living from PTing and math online, um, uh, along with her partner Charlie, who does good health. Uh, Liam is probably a rare entity globally for what he's achieved in in a CrossFit box because he's got four hundred members. But Liam still sees most of his income coming in from the PT side. Mm. 
he has 400. He is, I think he's got the largest box in the UK okay. in terms of membership. Yeah. Which is bizarre because I'm sure he's got the smallest box footprint-wise in the UK. But, you know, credit to the guy. Mm. So they all have to make a living. So every day they're out of mm. out of the gym, out of the box, they are losing money. And, you know, Dane said that can be three, four, five hundred pounds on a weekend because mm. those are the weekends of the days that they probably do more. Um, so you take them out of that, that's three, four hundred pounds actually out of a year's earning that might not be that much, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the younger the younger coaches, you know, we, we were talking about it earlier, you know, you give me a million coaches, I guarantee you the average is less than £15,000 a year. You know, the coaches that are earning more than twenty-five is probably less than 30%. The coaches that are earning 40, 50 grand are less than 10%. Um, I mean, uh, Probably everybody knows of James Smith PT. Yeah, yeah. So James Smith played for my sevens team. Okay. When when he was a thirty-five grand a year mm-hmm. um, uh, PT, not the person he is today. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole different story. We'll go into James another time. But so these guys need to earn a living, mm-hmm. and one of the challenges that I have coming into the sport is it's very much a European trait. But the cost to attend the events, even if you win the event, you're you're unlikely to break even attending an event. Mm. So you're actually losing money before you've even got to the event. But just attending the event, there's an additional cost on it. So for me, one of my big frustrations when I look at most sports is there isn't the financial reward to being a competitive athlete. Mm. The only advantage to being a competitive athlete is you might get a couple of sponsorship deals. But let's be really honest about the sponsorship deals. Top individual games athletes last year, not not the not the sort of top top five, the average earning for a games individual competitor was twenty five thousand pounds. How can you raise a family, afford to live? in today's world on that side of things. Divide that by hours works as well on and off the competition floor. Yeah. Well, that's that's because you've got two sides of it. You've got hours worked on themselves and you've got hours worked actually earning the living. Yeah. Um, Without criticism, I do think certain sponsors take advantage of that. Um, Personally, I prefer partnerships rather than sponsorships Mm. because you work on an idea together and you deliver the idea together and you both get your share of the idea rather than you give me a free case of knocko once a month. Or, you know, there, there are some... And that's not a criticism of knocko. I don't know what knocko's deals are, but mm. I don't see that brands actually providing real significant financial reward for the athletes yeah. in this sport. You go into rugby, completely different case of fish. You know, there's not that, and, and rugby, you know, they will get um, lots of stuff that actually helps them perform, where you don't get that same level of thing. And the difference between rugby and CrossFit is in rugby, you can be more selective because your base income is stable enough. Yeah. Whereas in CrossFit, you, you almost have to give away your soul. We had some noise interruptions, but we're still on the same topic, and Chris is actually talking about some specific examples, both for individuals like Ella Wilkinson, but also for the cost for teams when it comes to competing at a sanctional within Europe. Ella's going through university, so Ella's needs in terms of her income are probably not quite as great as, say, 
uh, Mike Catris, mm. for example, age-wise, you know, different ends of the One's having to pay for a property, mortgage, family, kids, the other one. The other one's going, I just have to pay for my beer money. Mm. Very different ends of the scale. But, you know, Ella's probably in the top five UK female athletes for the next generation. Mm. I still can't, if you were to ask me, where's her income level? When you compare her income to, say, um, mayhem athlete, female athletes. Uh, Hayley Adams. Hayley Adams is earnings. And the infrastructure that Hayley Adams is able to put around her, and that's the most significant difference between the UK and the US. Our athletes just don't have the income level. Yeah, prize money's aren't there. I mean, personally, I think the prize money's in, in Europe are disgraceful. You know, um, you're expecting every team that attempts to qualify to pay two fifty, and then you're asking them to pay seven fifty to attend the event. You're a thousand pounds in before you've even got to the event. Then you've got the travel and accommodation of everybody that's going to the event on your yep. thing. By the time you get there, you could be Norway two and a half thousand pounds by the time we actually got there. Wow! Plus the next. Uh, because of how we did the food, I think we got away with food at five, 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 six hundred pounds on food. Um, so we're three grand down. Prize money was two grand. That's not criticism of Norway. Norway, 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 I think, has a long way to go in terms of developing products. Mm-hmm. Fairly new as a sanctional event this year. Um, but I contrast that with strength and depth. You know, strength and depth wants to consider themselves an international tournament. A five grand prize money is not going to pay for a team to come over. Mm. You know, I can't see how Mayhem made it made a profit coming and competing at strength and depth. They might like the competition, they might like the programming, and that might be enough for them to come. But if you want to create a serious field outside of the games, the only way to do that is to bring in the prize money. Now, there might be things around strength and depth coming from an events background. I understand the cost of actually putting on an event at Excel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably one of the few people that would sit there and go, I don't know if the, how much they actually made it, but I doubt it's as much as people think it is. Right. Um, just purely, I have hired a whole half of Excel before, and I know how much that cost, and I very much doubt they got anywhere near earning that figure. Um, so I doubt they paid for that the same price, because mm. no, the space they had, but again, the space they had, I think they're probably two, three years away from really starting to generate the revenue they are definitely making a profit but not the profit that they probably will be making in two three years time me for me i'm from coming at it purely from looking at the athletes and the sacrifices the athletes put into this i think particularly the european competitions need to up their game in terms of um, recognizing that the athletes are the performers and without the athletes they've not got the same event. So Chris had raised some really interesting points about the cost to compete at the sanctional level. I wanted to know more from Chris about how he was going to try and take these learnings and these insights and apply those into the Saxons going forward as a a sanctional team looking to qualify for the sanctionals but subsequently and hopefully the games long term. Actually the long term plan for us, our next plan was like six men, six women, um, all decent, some probably better than others, and we would just take a 12-man squad with a view of, it's a five-year five year exercise where in five years, 
we should be qualifying. We should be qualifying three teams for the games. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. Um, so it's, it's taking that that journey of going. Let's do year one. Let's qualify for a couple of comps. Let's get as many of you going. Mm-hmm. Year two, we should be qualifying for more than so on and yeah. so on and so on. Um, trying to build an <coughs> an infrastructure. So doing uh, once a month meetups. So come down. Mm-hmm. You know, let's work. To, let's do some exercise uh, workouts together. Let's let's test. Test some workouts that we've just seen in other comps. Trial some things. Let's let's start working and understanding each other. Different athletes are going to respond differently to other athletes. We might have twelve, but we might find that two those two guys cannot work with those two girls. Mm-hmm. They just the pace that they set, they can't yeah. live with, or you know, whatever reason. You know, the the, the sort of um, I think Mike again on your previous. There's a synergy that has to happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So having that 12 months yeah. one and playing around with it and working that. And then more, most importantly, we set out that we would remunerate the athletes mm. for every day they spent with us. And that is to cover yeah. the financial loss that they give us mm. by volunteering their time. So they come out in the black, not in the red, which so helps are, with they, that commitment, helps with the focus as well. Yeah, um, and it also means... If you if you consider that a, a coach probably has to do six hours, six hours of work, to pay for their two hours of training, if you, if you look at the time equivalency that mm. they have to invest in one to be able to do the other, so by taking by taking the pain of you don't have to worry about that day's work, you 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 give them more time to invest in themselves, you know on that time equivalency uh, ratio. So that's that's kind of core structure of what we wanted to try and do with a, with a 12-man team, mm. um, provide a platform where we can take some of their stress away from them and go, here's, here's, your, here's your bubble, this is what you're going to get, this is how we ring fence it, we commit to them for 12 months, they commit to us for 12 months, mm. um, if they want to go and compete in, a, in, in an individual event, the answer is not no, the answer is yes, but let's work out where you fit in. Mm. Um, you know, if we get injuries two weeks before an event and you're the only athlete left, yeah. my expectation would, because I'm paying you, yeah, you, you turn up and perform for us. Mm. The view I've taken is just acknowledging that actually when you take them out of the gym, they need to earn a living. Yeah. Um, and understanding where they actually earn their living from. And that's that's kind of what we're trying to put in mm. place. Let's, start, let's look for the... 24 to 26 year olds mm. and build a base <clears throat> with them and then help them give them not design their programs but give them focus and go mm. look we need your strength to get to here we need your running to get to here mm. we need your swimming to get and just give them points that yeah. they then take away and go and work on with whoever's delivering yeah. their coaching programs yeah because I think I'd imagine um, there's a, a lot of individuals in their mid to late 20s who have personal coaching, have one-to-one coaching where they have those sort of conversations. Mm. And you've already mentioned that you see the future of the sanctional circuit to be team, not individual. And that it's an extra layer to add to that is that you're then engaged maybe kind of for a year or planning to be engaged in a few years with a team, whether that be, it could be TAP, it could be Saxons, and and that it's it's part of that roadmap to where you want to get to. Yeah. So there we have it. A bit of a different episode this week, but I hope you found it interesting. 
and I'm really grateful to Chris for giving me the chance to talk to him, but also for him sharing openly his thoughts on some of the potential challenges to elite level or aspiring elite level athletes facing with regards to the cost to compete and the level of commitment that it requires to kind of make that happen. So be really interested to kind of expand this conversation. Um, if you want to get involved on talking about that, um, then reach out to me um, and let's see if we can get make that conversation happen. Uh, this isn't the first time I've heard a conversation and statements about kind of standardizing prize money, but equally kind of really making sure the sponsorships are tangible and reflect the effort and the commitment required by the athletes in question. Hope you've enjoyed it. Take care.